Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're turning to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And of course, in chapters 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the tremendous mystery that God has set aside Israel and allowed the church to be grafted in. And as he comes to the conclusion of this section of the book of Romans, we come to the 33rd verse of Romans chapter 11, and we read about a truth about God that is fit for every situation as we discover the Apostle Paul declaring in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways are past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Who hath been His counselor? Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We come to discover this evening as we talk once more about Calvinism, the greatness of some of the mysteries of God, and give a confession even at the start. That confession is this. There are things in the Bible that I'll never, this side of eternity, be able to fully understand and grasp. And I'm okay with that. The Lord said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the spirit is like the wind. It blows whithersoever it listeth, and you don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it goes. Even so are the things of God, the mysteries of God to us. We know when things are happening and what God has revealed. But sometimes it's difficult for us to synthesize those things. And we certainly discover that when we talk about Calvinism. That's what we're going to talk about once again this evening. So I think we better pray, don't you? Let's pray and we'll look into God's Word. Father, I pray you'd help us this evening to thoughtfully, carefully, honestly thank your thoughts after you, to open up our minds to your Word, to revel in your mysteries, and then to acknowledge humbly that there's so many things that we do not understand, and yet we understand that you're a great God and how your mysteries are unsearchable. Be with us this evening in this service. May some questions that have been asked for a long time by ones in this service be answered. And may we go out from this place saying it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're aware by now that when it comes to the topic of Calvinism, we have had people talking about this for some 400 years because John Calvin, a teacher and a writer during the time of the Reformation, was followed by Jacobus Arminius, who was a follower of Calvin. But Arminius had some questions about some of the things that were conclusions to Calvin's students, but not such conclusions to Arminius, so much so that the Synod of Dort was called together. The Arminians wrote their, they called them the remonstrances, eight concerns they had about the writings and the teachings of Calvin's Reformed positions the remonstrances. And so over 200 clergymen and often even state leaders met together at the Council of Dort to wrestle through these arguments, these nuances of theology. What a day that must have been. Uh, that went on for months. I think it was five months, the Council of Dort, and by the end of it, they had taken those eight remonstrances and boiled them down into five themes and those five themes become what we today know affectionately or non-affectionately as the five points of Calvinism. Those five points of Calvinism spilling out uh, from the Council of Dort 
Remember, even as we enter into this, the five points of Calvinism only reflect the teaching of John Calvin. He didn't write these five points. His students did. You ever heard the adage, the teacher's doubt becomes the student's dogma? There's real truth in that. And so things that were speculation to Calvin became matters that were more clarified by his students. And of course, by now, we've come to discover and know the five points of Calvinism quite well. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And large theological skirmishes have gone on for 400 years on each of these themes. So we introduced this study a number of weeks ago. I said that any sincere Calvinist will tell you that it's not right to selectively choose which of the five tulip petals you like. It's an all or nothing thing with a Calvinistic theologian. So they will shudder to hear you say, I think I'm okay with total depravity, but I can't go there on limited atonement. Uh, It's all or nothing. And we'll see why in just a moment. Because what we've tried to do is share classical definitions of Calvinistic theology. There's pop Calvinism, popular Calvinism, and most people in popular Calvinism who converse about this topic in our generation are going to immediately say, oh, well, when it comes to perseverance of the saints, that's just eternal security. I believe in that. Doesn't everybody believe in that? Well, that's pop Calvinism. Total depravity from the head of my, uh, the crown of my head, the, the sole of my foot, I'm altogether depraved. I'm good with that, right? Not that I'm good with it, but you understand. I, I understand it, believe it. But is that what the Calvinist teaches? Well, not really. So you'll remember some of these definitions that are really classical definitions uh, to those various petals. And let's say from the outset that you're not going to get an answer to the battle in this service this evening or probably ever from Pastor Phelps, okay? I'm not here to say I've figured this thing out and I'm going to write a book on it. (laughs) That's just not happening, okay? But what I want us to have is an understanding of what the arguments are, and at least a godly fear so that we don't get swept away because there are a lot of people who are swept up with this. After all, there's history there, there's foundation there, there's so many books that have been written, there are denominations that have been started, there are schools that have been established. There's so many people that are going in this camp, and today we're living in a rapid rise of Calvinistic influence. Just an observation. This is all free, by the way. We'll get into the outline here in a moment. Observation from your pastor. When you study historic theology, Calvinism seems to always be popular in times of peace and prosperity. Not so popular in times when peace and prosperity has gone away. In times of war, not so much on the Calvinistic side. In times of peace and prosperity, a lot more. Why? Because in times of peace and prosperity, people have more time to be in the library. Calvinism tends to live in the library. And Arminianism, if you don't mind me saying it this way, or the opposite side of Calvinism, tends to live more in the laboratory. The library, when you're at ease. The laboratory, when you're in war. And so the speculative times, you'll find this in all types of theology, 
The more speculative the theology, the more you'll find it popular during times of peace. So it hasn't been super surprising to a student of historic theology to say there's been a rapid acceleration of interest in Calvinistic and Reformed theology in the last 30 and 40 years. Especially in America, we've enjoyed peace and prosperity, lots of library time. And library time tends to fester with what we're talking about this evening. So what are we talking about? Well, when we talk about the five points of Calvinism, we start with total depravity. So let's let the Calvinists define total depravity. I have a definition up there. Inasmuch as Adam's offspring are born with sinful natures, they do not have the ability to choose spiritual good or spiritual evil. That comes from a book published about 20 years ago by a man by the name of Daniel Steele and Curtis Thomas. Adam's offspring were born with sinful natures. They do not have the ability then to choose spiritual good or spiritual evil. That's a Calvinistic definition of total depravity. Here's the Westminster Confession of Faith, a classic Calvinistic confession. The Westminster Confession says it this way, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability or will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation or to prepare himself thereunto. Can you remember what we said, how, how we said the Calvinist defines total depravity, total inability, and the comparison then is made? Doesn't Ephesians chapter 2 say we're dead in trespasses and sin? And so if you're totally unable and dead in trespasses and sin, you can't respond to any spiritual stimuli. So that's how a real Calvinist begins with the T in the tulip. You can't respond to any spiritual stimuli. So what are we going to do? If you can't respond and can't understand, what are we going to do? The Calvinist has it figured out. The Calvinist talks about, they call it the ordo salutis, the order of the things that happen to you at the moment of salvation. And what's the very first thing that a Calvinist says has to happen in the order of salutis? I hear it. That's right. So regeneration has to come first. This is the way they say it. Regeneration can take place in the smallest of infants, in the sphere of the covenant of God. He usually regenerates his children from infancy. This is Hoxima in his Reformed dogmatics. So remember I said, why do Reformed theologians baptize infants? We're not just making this up. They get it straight from Catholicism. The Catholics teach that in the baptism of infants, regeneration occurs. And so do the Reformed theologians. Why do they do that? Well, they're kissing cousins of the Catholics. They're not that far removed. And so when you enter into the sphere of covenant theology, and Reformed theology is, or covenant theology is part of Reformed theology, infant baptism is that place where regeneration typically starts. Not always. There are some Presbyterians and some Methodists and some who claim Reformed theology who make it more of a mystery simply baptizing the child into the covenant with the expectation that this mystery of regeneration will happen for this child so baptized. But we can say many believe with this matter of regeneration that it happens in infancy or somewhere thereabouts, at least when they're baptized in the covenant. Here's John Piper. We can say first that regeneration is the cause of faith. Having been born of God results in our believing. Our believing is the immediate evidence of God's begetting. 
So there's the mystery of regeneration, then you will believe. It's not you will believe, therefore you will be regenerated. So when we start this chain of Calvinistic thought, it starts with total inability, and that chain will bind you. And it will cause you to say the only way out of this total inability is a regenerative work of God that's given to a covenant child. That's big stuff, isn't it? So back to pop theology. In pop theology, pop Calvinism, total depravity, we all agree we're totally sinners from the top of our head to the bottom of our foot, but that is not classical Calvinism. So we go to the U. The U in Calvinism stands for unconditional election. Unconditional election. Here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life. Others are foreordained to everlasting death. So can you give me a verse that backs that up? Can you give me a verse that tells me from the Bible that God creates some for everlasting damnation? That they're predestined to everlasting damnation. Can you think of a verse? You've had long enough. You won't find one. You won't find one. There's not a verse in the Bible that teaches what we would like to classify as double predestination. Yes, the Bible speaks of predestination. The Bible speaks of the predestination of the believer into the image of Christ. And the Bible speaks of election, but the Bible does not speak of the election unto damnation or predestination unto damnation. But the Calvinist does. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is hundreds of years old and one of the classic documents on the topic of Calvinism. Election is in the Bible, but not double election. Predestination is in the Bible, but not double predestination. And when you come, listen, when you come to the point of believing what this statement says, that for His glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life and others are foreordained to everlasting death, you have a real problem on your hands. And that real problem is the death of an infant. Because if an infant dies and God has predestined some to be elect to heaven and some to be elect and predestined to hell, what about that little baby? Did he he elect some of them one way and some of them the other, even before they took those momentary breaths and were taken from us? Then we come to the topic of limited atonement. Limited atonement. Or, as the Calvinists would call it, particular redemption. A.W. Pink said the sovereignty of God, in his book rather, The Sovereignty of God, said we're not unmindful of the fact that the limited design of the death of Christ has been the subject of much controversy. (laughs) Really. Some people have called limited atonement the Achilles heel of Calvinism. And anyone who reads their Bible is going to say, "I I have a hard time with limited atonement. Because to limit the atonement means you can't have words like world in verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And you can't go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 and hold to a limited atonement. For He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's pretty unlimited. Right, it's the Achilles heel of the Calvinistic chain. When you come after limited atonement, that one falls apart pretty quickly. Here's Lorraine Bettner a strong Calvinist, he said, Calvinists hold that in the intention and secret plan of God, Christ died for the elect only. 
He died for the elect only. I think I told you about having lunch with a Calvinist years ago at the end of lunch, said, well, I think the difference between you and me is, Brother Phelps, you're probably going to preach Christ died for your sins, and I'm going to have to preach Christ may have died for your sins. And I just walked away shaking my head thinking, that's a pretty sad place to be, isn't it? But that's what A.W. Pink says, again in his book, The Sovereignty of God. Pink says, Christ died for the elect only. Christ did not die to make possible the salvation of mankind, but to make certain the salvation of all that the Father hath given him. So, classical Calvinism. It can make you shudder a little bit if you're a Bible reader. Irresistible grace is the next point along the pathway. And Westminster Confession of Faith on Irresistible Grace says, All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, He is pleased in His appointment and accepted time effectually to call by His almighty power determining them to the time that is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yea, so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. So irresistible grace. If God's going to call you, He is, after all, omnipotent. You will not be able to resist. There's no almost persuaded in Calvinism. If you're one of the elect, you will be persuaded, and your will will change by His grace that's been revealed. And then the perseverance of the saints. Again, those who say, well, eternal security, everybody believes in that, not so fast. Louis Burkhoff says this with regard to perseverance of the saints. The continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer, by which the work of divine grace that's begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. Well, that, that sounds pretty good. But it becomes challenging when people on the Calvinistic side really begin to think about it. Here's Philip Congdon, Soteriological Implications of Five-Point Calvinism in the Grace Evangelical Society Journal says, absolute assurance of salvation is impossible for classical Calvinism since works are an inevitable outcome of true salvation. One, I should say one, can only know he or she is saved by the presence of good works. But since no one is perfect, any assurance is at best imperfect as well. So when we talk about the perseverance of the saints, what they're saying is, if you're saved, there's going to be evident fruit. Absent that evident fruit, there can be no confident assurance. Now, I'm not denying that there ought to be evident fruit in the life of the believer, but we better be careful when it comes to that being the single uh, evidence of true salvation because we'll get into a lot of trouble very quickly. So it's well for us to remember come to some level of reality here. A lot of what you read when you read Calvinism reflects biblical truth. And so, when it reflects biblical truth and you can understand it, rejoice in it, be a Popeye theologian. Eat all the worms and spit out the germs. But you've got to know where the germs are. There are some good things in what many Calvinistic authors have written. You know, when we quote the Puritans, you're quoting the Calvinistic authors. When your pastor quotes Spurgeon, whom I love, I read a Spurgeon sermon every day for probably six years. Well, not Sundays, but six days a week, so that I could just read through. It was my devotions. I love Spurgeon. Spurgeon is a really strong Calvinist, and there are times when I have to say, mm, not so fast there, Mr. Spurgeon. I love you, but not that much. Uh, not on that particular issue. The theological concepts set forth by the Calvinist 
are reflective of their systematic theology. So I want to talk to you about systematic theology, how systematic theology draws out truths from God's Word, weaves them together, and comes at the understanding of God's Word from a deductive perspective. But first, I love the statement that Tom Farrell made often, nobody ever became a Calvinist by studying their Bible. There are tensions that we have to acknowledge, and here's the tension, that the classic tension between the Calvinist and the Arminian. The classic tension is this, divine sovereignty versus human responsibility. Because the Calvinist focuses on divine sovereignty, man's freedom to choose or reject salvation is denied. After all, reasons the Calvinist, how can a mere mortal deny the omnipotent God? And so the Calvinist, strong focused on the sovereignty of God, man's freedom to choose or reject salvation is denied. On the other side, the Arminians, who would focus on the freedom of the will, don't like to make much of the sovereign work of God in salvation. And so we're looking at a balancing act here. If you're saying by this time in this study, Pastor Phelps, I think this is seven weeks into this, I'm still not sure where you stand. Great. Then I've done my job. I hope I can say I stand not a Calvinist, but I have to reflect that some Calvinistic truths are biblically framed truths, and so I want to be a biblicist. So we're doing some he said, she said. So there's tit for tat that goes on in the theological world. The Calvinist is going to say God is sovereign, and the Arminian is going to say, oh, not so fast. Doesn't the Bible say whosoever will may come? And the Calvinist is going to say God is in control. And the Arminian is going to say, but he said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Calvinist is going to say, God rules in the affairs of men. But the Arminian says, but the spirit and the bride say, come. And the Calvinist is going to say, God knew everything before the foundation of the world. And the Arminian is going to respond, yes, and whosoever believeth in him shall be saved. There are these tension points. The Calvinist is limiting freedom. And many Calvinists, especially those who would be classified as hyper-Calvinists, so limit man's freedom as to make man a virtual automaton, created for God's pleasure, whether to destruction or to eternal life. The decisions made for that person were made in eternity past, and they become a virtual automaton. And now, if you come to that point in your thought, you really have another thought that's quite frightening. And that thought is this, if God created that person for his glory to be revealed in that person's damnation, then is God responsible for sin? And once you ask that question, you have a real strong Bible answer in James chapter 1. God's not tempted to sin, neither does he tempt any man. You blaspheme the character of God when you make God the creator of sin, but you come very close to doing that when you say that God has created some for damnation, because after all, he's elected some for salvation and elected through double predestination, some for damnation. I wish I could ask you to just stand and stretch right now. I know it's Wednesday night, you've been out in the cold, and this is a topic that we've uh, hummed on a, lo a long time about, but let's, let's ask this. Can you think of some passages 
that strong Calvinists would refer to to say, here's my point. Have you thought about this verse? Can you think of any passages? I wrote down a few. Josh. Yeah, so whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate that he might be the firstborn. Is there anything in there about predestinating some to damnation? No. Is there anything in there that prohibits someone from making a, a volitional choice? He predestinated them unto something, that they be conformed to the image of Christ. Is that passage, and this is the question that when we go back and forth on it, is that passage indeed speaking about individual salvation? Or is he speaking in that passage about God's ultimate destination and glorification of the individual? Okay? Yeah, that's a passage. That, and we're going to go to that passage next week. Can you think of another one? Yes. Can you hear? Yes. So Romans chapter 9. As it is written, Jacob have I love, but Esau have I hate. So we put Romans 9 into its context. We discover he's speaking about nations. He's speaking about the nation of Israel. He's speaking about the, the Gentiles as a people group in Genesis, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And so while speaking about that one that he loves and that one that he hates, he's speaking about the children of and the people of. So he's speaking nationally, not individually. But boy, you'll hear Romans 9, 13 bantered about a lot by the Calvinist Jacob of I loved, Esau of I hate, and see there? Well, we're talking about people groups. It's Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a group. Let's interpret it within its context. We'll come to that next week as well. Yes, Tom? Well, John 6, 44, you know, when come to the Father, except... Right. And so, when a person says, whoever will may come, are they, by saying that, denying that the Father draws? That's both sides. John 6 is very clearly there, but there's also clearly in John chapter 6 the matter of faith and belief. And the responsibility of people to respond to the invitation that's all through that chapter. So we have both sides of the spectrum, but the point is the Calvinists will run real fast to one side. It doesn't mean it's denying the other one. The other side's in the same chapter. Another one? How about, yes? Well, the one that I like so much is John 3.16. Yes. That's right. So Darlene did exactly what I was about to ask you to do. She went over to the other side that the Arminian is going to say, well, what are you going to do with whosoever if you're so bound to this election thing? Can you think of another one? There ought to be many that come to mind. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. 1 Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that they should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Josh? Those who will confess him before men, I'll confess before my Father which is in heaven. So again, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and recognize that because there are tensions between these passages, we're going to have a tension that's ongoing and has been ongoing for 400 years. And we're going to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's look at some of this truth recognized this evening and conclude with this. 
We need to allow the Bible to say what the Bible says, even when the Bible is saying something that's contrary to our theological perspectives. Let the Bible speak, understanding that there's a lot that I I do not understand, and that's okay. It's pride that causes us to think that we can understand everything. Even Peter. Now listen, Peter traveled with the Lord for three years. Peter was the one who, in the book of Acts, opens the door of faith to the Jewish people, to the Gentile people. He traveled with Mark, and Mark picked up the lessons that Peter had shared so much as he was able to write the gospel of Mark. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. We all know that Peter well knew the Lord. Humble fisherman, very knowledgeable of the things of the Lord, and First and Second Peter make that very clear. But listen to Peter's confession in verse 15 of chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures, even to their own destruction. Friend, if, if Peter is going to say that sometimes I scratch my head when I'm reading Paul, no wonder I'm bald. I've scratched my head a lot. But that confession is glorious. The confession is there are things in God's Word that are beyond what my mind can absorb, and that's okay. And so I want you to note with me that there are limits to the power of logic. Good systematic theology takes proof texts from Scripture, weaves them together, and comes to conclusions. It moves from passage to passage, not necessarily chronologically. So, for instance, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. I'm proof texting now. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, verse 16, rather, and is profitable for doctrine. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I believe that that word that's given, inspired of God, is inerrant. John 17 and verse 17, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. I believe that that word that's given is also infallible. Isaiah 55 tells us that God's word I'm sorry, Uh, infallible, will not return void. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, let me explain my doctoral position. But I began by giving you my conclusion. Systematic theology states its conclusion. It's deductive. I believe in inspiration. That's my conclusion. Now let me show you why. Proof text, proof text, proof text, proof text. Conclude with me. Biblical theology is inductive. Biblical theology says, all right, I find something interesting back here in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the Spirit moved. Spirit moved. Okay, God created, Spirit moved, and then God's going to say, let us. Okay, I'm starting to develop a theology of the Trinity. The Spirit was moving over the face of the waters. Is that another manifestation of God? He speaks to himself in conversation about let us make man in our image. There's another plural. By the time I get to Isaiah chapter Seven, I'm beginning to understand something of there's going to be this incarnation. 
that the virgin will conceive and bring forth the son. You're going to call him name God, his name God with us. I'm moving from Scripture through the Scripture, typically chronologically, to come to an inductive conclusion. By the end of it, bingo, I believe that God is a trinity and that he's manifested himself in these various ways. I can do that one of two ways. I can do it through biblical theology, which is inductive, going from Genesis to Revelation, or I can do it through systematic theology, which is deductive, give you my thesis, and then prove it with my proof text. And there's nothing wrong with proof text unless they're taken out of context. So the old adage, a text without a context is a pretext, right? Those are both logical ways of weaving together Scripture, and logic is necessary. Sometimes it's rare, but it's always necessary when we're dealing with the things of God. And the Bible allows room for inferences. I read this, and I make a conclusion based on an inference. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, are talking to Jesus. And remember what they said? She's been married seven times. Whose wife is she going to be? Jesus says to them, have you not read that God has said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Checkmate. He just checkmated the Sadducees. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They don't believe in the resurrection. How did Jesus come to that conclusion? He came to that conclusion based on a verbal tense. Didn't you not read that God says, I am? He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am. That's all it took. The inference drew the conclusion. You see the same thing in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. In Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, we read, they're not all Abraham who are of Abraham. How do I know that? Isaac from Abraham Esau from Abraham. Inference, they're not all Abraham or of Abraham. Go with the Isaac line over here. So inferences out of theology are, are fine, but sometimes, we're just talking logic here, sometimes you can blow it with your inferences. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We appreciate God's grace and His forgiveness. Here's the inference. God's gracious and forgives. So let's continue in sin. Wrong conclusion. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? You can take inferential roads with logic and come to the wrong end. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, similarly. Some will say, how are the dead raised up? Here's the inference. I don't have any specific knowledge on it. I've never seen the dead raised up. Thou fool, that which thou sowest. And so we note here, some inferences are right, some inferences are wrong, but God's Word is true. It's always true. And there are tensions that are formed in our theological study, regardless of how bright you are. You're going to find yourself at times in deep tension. Why? Because we are sinners and we're prone to misinterpretation, we're prone to misapplication, we're prone to misrepresentation. Logic is a God-given tool. But logic has its limitations. You can have a false premise. You can have a false premise. God is love. Well, God is love, so I guess God loves homosexuality. (laughs) No. You've 
begun on the wrong foot, you're going to end up in the wrong place. You can have a false presupposition. Often this happens with our traditions. Those who have come out of other religions often wrestle when they're faced with something in God's Word that they've never been faced with before. But I thought there was a place called purgatory, and I can't find it. Presuppositions can lead us down wrong paths. And then you have paradoxes. Logic is limited by the possibility of paradoxes, what seem to be contradictory statements. And when our logic encounters a biblical paradox, faith has to step in and resolve the tension. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The seeming paradoxes in the Bible, now this, this is kind of paid or we're about to conclude here. The seeming paradoxes in the Bible may seem illogical to us, but they're not illogical to God. I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about supralogic. C.S. Lewis is a far brighter person than me, but supralogic. It goes something like this. You draw one line and you are in the linear. You draw a second line, you're still linear. You can draw a third line and now you're beginning to form a three-dimensional cube. As you form that three-dimensional cube, don't forget that God who is outside of your limits can perhaps with one line put it in a fourth dimension. God doesn't live within the limitations that we have. So our minds are limited. We're finite. His is infinite. And what may appear to us to be a logical paradox may be totally understandable in the mind. In fact, I'm sure is completely understandable in the mind of God. And I'm okay with that. And I want to tell you something, those who go down deep in the weeds of Calvinism have a very difficult time being okay with that. And especially in the same way, even on Arminian side. So we have to understand that the limitless power of our Lord is made evident in God's Word. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, belong to the Lord. Isaiah 55, His thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. No one will refute the fact that God's ability to reason is far beyond man's. The finite knowledge of man pales in comparison to the infinite knowledge of God. So there are many truths that God reveals which we find impossible to grasp. Can you name some of them? I've got to watch my time here. What are some truths that we find hard to wrap our minds around? Eternity. Yeah, I, I can't wrap my mind around that because I'm finite, born into time. Holiness. Total separation from anything that's Sinful, total difference. That's what holiness really means, the difference of God. Jim. I'm sorry? God forsaken of God on the cross. Yes, God forsaken of God on the cross. The Trinity, the three-anthropic person, truly God and truly man. There are a lot of things, right, that I, I know going into it. I'm not, not going to be able to explain the Trinity to you. But when it comes to this doctrine of soteriology, which is where Calvinism is. We have a harder time stepping back and saying, there's some things about this doctrine I'm not going to be able to understand. But let me tell you something. There's some things about this that you're not going to be able to understand. And sometimes it looks like two contradictory statements. It's not contradictory in the mind of God. There are mysteries woven into the doctrine of salvation. These mysteries need to be acknowledged and defended. The fundamental tension in the Calvinist-Arminian debate centers on the question does salvation come as a matter of divine determination, a result of human responsibility? And the paradoxical answer to this question is not an either-or, it's a both-and. 
So you've heard the illustrations that Arminianism and Calvinism, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are two railroad tracks. I can see the tracks, and somewhere off there on the horizon, they're coming together, but I can't see it. Right. It's like two parts of the roof. And the two parts are going to come to a point, but it's up in the cloud, and I can't see it. The door into heaven says, whosoever will, and when it shuts behind, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I appreciate those truths because I'm simple-minded, and I can acknowledge there are things that I simply can't understand. I'm going to read to you from a composite that Fisk put together in his book, Divine Sovereignty and Human Freedom, of some great voices from yesterday, and I won't conclude this outline tonight, and I'll probably be in trouble to that end, but uh, we've, we've got to get out and get our children, or I'll be in more trouble. Here's what Ironside said. Scripture plainly teaches election based upon God's foreknowledge. It is just as plain in its declaration of man's free will. All men are invited to accept the salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ. Whosoever will means just what it says. Here's James M. Gray of the Moody Bible Institute. Take the lines indicated by the division into Calvinists and Arminians, for example. The apparently opposite positions for which these schools of religious thought stand are both found in the Bible. God's sovereignty and man's free agency. But it would seem as though no one finite mind could hold both equally at the same time. How necessary, however, that both be duly emphasized. Here's C.I. Schofield. In all the Christian centuries, men have endeavored to account philosophically for the apparent paradox of God's sovereign election and man's free will, but none have ever succeeded. Both are wholly true, but the connecting and reconciling truth has never been revealed. R.A. Torrey, began with a Congregationist, but when he knew, uh, but he became Presbyterian, he says, the Bible is the revelation of an infinite mind that presents all sides of the truth. We are not to try to explain away the clear teaching of the Word of God as to the sovereignty of God in one hand, nor the clear teaching of the Word as to the freedom of the human will on the other. A.T. Pearson, a Presbyterian, would say it this way, election taught in the Word must be consistent both with the sovereign will of God and the freedom of man. And if we cannot reconcile these two, it's because the subject is infinitely lifted up above us. So when you say, I can't figure it all out, you're in really good company. We can't figure it all out. We'll, we'll conclude with it next week. God bless you as you go this evening. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.